Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis on all the issues and topics you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. And as ever, we start with breaking news that we can bring to you regarding the situation at Arsenal and the potential recruitment of a new head coach. And of course, some of you, you will have seen photographs uh, on social media of uh, two Arsenal officials leaving Mikel Arteta's house in Manchester very early on Monday morning. Uh, we can update you on terms of what uh, has been going on since. Uh, it's our understanding, having spoken to people at Manchester City, that Arteta had permission from the club to speak to Arsenal regarding the job at the Emirates. Uh, that came from both Pep Guardiola and uh, Sporting Director Chiki Begeristan. Uh, Arteta himself was waiting on that particular meeting to happen for probably around 10 days because the club thought it best that no compromise could be suggested in uh, their assistant manager meeting with an opponent. They of course, on Sunday, 15th of December. A little bit short in terms of waiting to have done so uh, immediately after that 3-0 win for City at the Emirates. But clearly, there is an urgency about Arsenal um, that they want to get this appointment done. Shambles on the pitch. They look fairly shambolic off the pitch as well, Duncan. Still an odd situation um, to see such uh, clear and... um, what looks slightly staged, photographs of um, uh, officials of another club outside uh, the assistant Manchester City coach's home at 1.30am on a Monday morning. Um, Unusual in the sense that normally uh, these meetings take place in a very discreet way. They do, and and meeting meeting at the players' house in the early hours or the late hours of a of a Sunday in the early hours of a Monday is relatively discreet. Um, newspapers don't usually have photographers waiting outside all of the uh, potential candidates for uh, a job of this dimension, hoping they can get an image. So I get what that tells me is that one at least one of the parties involved had tipped the photographers off about the meeting and wanted pictures to be taken of um, Vinay Venkateshwam, the managing director of Arsenal and Hus Fami, um, their chief contract negotiator, leaving Arteta's house after um, the discussions. Um, Is that Manchester City or is that Arsenal? Um, or is it indeed Mikel Arteta? They would all individually have separate reasons for um, wanting that story to come out. Um, Arsenal, obviously, on a horrendous run of results, um, it's clear that uh, the answer to their uh, medium to long term managerial problem is not going to be Freddie Lundberg. Uh, Freddie Lundberg, in fact, is speaking openly to the press in the last uh, couple of press conferences given, um, putting pressure on the club to make a decision over the appointment and complaining that he does not have enough assistance in terms of um, assistant coaches to do the job he's been asked to do properly, which is um, 
quite unusual. Uh, I, I haven't really seen that from a interim appointment before to be so explicit about um, being put in a difficult position by his employers, especially one who was considered as a potential candidate for the job, albeit um, an outside uh, candidate. Um, so Arsenal need to be seen to be doing something, um, particularly as it's been very well reported that uh, they're um, using a four-man committee of which Venkatesham and Fami are, are two parts to come up with a very long list of potential candidates, to vet that list of candidates, to interview multiple individuals and then present uh, one, two or three options to the Cronkey family for them to make a final decision on who the replacement should be. As the results get worse, they need to be seen to be doing something. From Manchester City's point of view, as you say, um, it wouldn't be good for them for there to be a perception that Arteta had talked to Arsenal in the build-up to the game, um, that they'd given permission for Arteta to talk to Arsenal in the build-up to the game and him not be appointed ahead of that match. Um, whichever way it goes now, uh, they can say we did not allow him to be compromised in terms of speaking to the club and making an agreement with Arsenal that he would join them uh, before a key match for us. Uh, it it became, becomes irrelevant, of course, because Manchester City won the match comfortably. But you could have envisaged a situation in which um, Manchester City didn't win there and some questions were asked about the club for allowing Arteta to speak to Arsenal beforehand. More importantly is what's Arteta's view of this? Um, again, you can see a circumstance in which it is good for Arteta to be associated with Arsenal, to be seen to be the preferred candidate for the club. Um, we know that at one point he was the preferred candidate to replace Arsene Wenger. And at the very last minute, um, a Spanish agent came in and proposed Unai Emery as an alternative and Arsenal uh, moved away from appointing Arteta and put Emery in instead. Um, Arteta, we know, was unhappy with that situation. Um, it looks like he has the opportunity to become manager again, but he has a decision to make here. Um, it's very clear that he is one of the, the candidates, a strong candidate as a successor for Pep Guardiola. Um, Pep Guardiola's future in doubt. Um, we know that in the long term, Guardiola will not stay at Manchester City. There will come a point where he'll leave. It may be at the end of this season. Juventus want uh, the manager, as we've uh, as we outlined in Friday's podcast again with um, Aurelio Capaldi. There's basically an open invitation for Guardiola when he goes to Italy to coach, and he said he wants to coach in Italy to take that job. Um, so City have to prepare themselves for that. And Arteta is strong in their thoughts as a replacement. So Arteta, from his calculation, he has the opportunity. It's not guaranteed, but he has an opportunity to become the next manager of the best resource club in English football to start his managerial career, Manchester City. Um, if he wants to do that, if his decision is to go that way, it doesn't do him any harm to be seen to be the preferred candidate for Arsenal. It, doesn't, it wouldn't do him any harm for him to receive an offer and it would, you would imagine it would be a strong financial offer from Arsenal to take over and to be able to take that into negotiations with Manchester City when the time, if 
and when the time comes that he is offered the Manchester City job. Um, so, so in terms of who put that story out, I think it could go one of three ways. The interesting, the most interesting thing, of course, is what Arteta's decision will be should the job be offered to him now. If he's given decision now to become Arsenal manager immediately, take that job or wait on the expectation that Manchester City will offer him the job when Guardiola leaves. So I'd like to put just a little bit of context into this, uh, Duncan. Um, as you uh, referred to, Arteta was um, a major candidate to replace Arsene Wenger in 2018. Uh, he had two interviews with Arsenal who were very impressed with him. However, what probably eventually made him uh, not the pick for the club was that even Gazidis was the person who was promoting him most in that particular process. And of course, Gazidis left his job as chief executive six months later to join AC Milan. Now, I'm told that while Pep Guardiola has told Chiki Begeristan and Ferran Soriano, the chief executive and sporting director of Manchester City, that Arteta is a ready-made replacement for him when he decides to leave, uh, that neither Begiristan nor Soriano have yet to commit to Guardiola's anointment of Arteta as head coach. I think that's something which Arteta knows. Hence, why would he be meeting Arsenal? Because he needs options and he wants an option. The, problem or the question facing Arteta is, as you said, does he sit tight in the hope that he wins round Soriano and Begeristan's confidence and does succeed at a club which is incredibly well resourced, obviously in a much better state both as a squad and financially than Arsenal, or does he turn down the chance to replace Guardiola, which let's face it, is a very daunting prospect for anyone um, and instead go for a much lower bar at Arsenal, where effectively he couldn't be sacked because it couldn't be any more of a mess, whatever the results he gets. I suspect that Arteta, as an intelligent and very considered person, will need a lot of persuading and guarantees from the Arsenal hierarchy regarding what he has in order to um, spend, in order to build a new squad effectively and regenerate some of the squad that are already there. What's going on in the Arsenal Academy in terms of players coming through? And also, what his job security prospects are looking like? Because this is becoming Manchester United all over again, where one the manager of 20-odd years leaves, they bring in someone else, he fails, he gets sacked. And of course, we've seen... You know, this numerous times at Old Trafford since 2013 when Alex Ferguson left. We've now seen Emery last just 18 months. And so the next man in there is going to be under uh, an awful lot of pressure with regards to um, how the, the team perform and how he performs as head coach. So with Arteta, I think, as I said, he's, um, he's not someone to make rash decisions, but Arsenal's very much in his heart. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I think if this was a simple business decision and this was a choice of, I don't know, becoming chief executive at Pound Stretcher or chief executive at Harrods, you know, it'd be quite an easy one to make. 
depending on uh, what your philosophy of uh, commercialism is. But with football, there's also emotions involved. We know this, uh, we've seen it, and therefore Arteta is, I think, in a, I'd say he's in a very good position, um, but at the same time, in his head, he might be putting a, a rock in a hard place because both options have their um, advantages, uh, their, certainly um, their uh, temptations, as well as the ability for him to succeed. I can't say right now where, which one he'll choose, but I think City would be the safer option. Yeah, I looked at a few other points you make about this. This is a negotiation process from Arteta's point of view. He's in a position of, of strength in that his status in the game is high. He has not simply Arsenal coming back to talk to him for a second time. He has Everton, who have approached him to be the replacement for Marco Silva. That obviously is extremely unlikely to happen, given that he has the offer of Arsenal and Manchester City seeing him as a potential replacement for Guardiola. So so his status is high. Therefore, he can go to Arsenal in these discussions and say, um, this is what I want. You're in a bad position. I need these elements of control and this degree of budget and this degree of security um, before I accept the job um, should you offer it to me. Um, The second element here is he's actually not very experienced. He hasn't been an assistant coach for very long. This this halo around him, a lot of it comes from being associated with Guardiola and being associated with the, the most dominant team of English football in the last decade playing this sensational, entertaining game that they've played. We're asking a guy with limited experience as an assistant coach to go and manage one of the biggest clubs in world football uh, with one of the biggest revenues and a huge support and a massive degree of expectation and a difficult job. You know, there's no question it's a hard and challenging job. Um, Going into Manchester City, You're also, as a first job for uh, an inexperienced assistant coach, that's quite a jump. So you could understand if there was a degree of uh, nervousness about that decision because um, he's going to be exposed whatever job he decides to take if it's one of these absolute top-level Premier League clubs as a first step as a manager. One other element here is I'm hearing from... um, one of the other strong uh, candidates for the Arsenal job, and there's a, a long list there with a, a number of, of serious names with a, a huge degree of experience in European football, that their feeling is that Arteta is Arsenal's favourite and that Arteta will probably end up being the Arsenal manager. So the, the sense around the position from people who are looking at it and um are involved in discussions over the post is that this is Arteta's to make his decision over. Well, just to cap off this particular part of the podcast, um, my conversations with senior sources at Manchester City uh, today after the publication of these photographs um, uh, were also that uh, while permission was given for Arteta to speak to Arsenal, that the chairman of the club, Caldwin Almobarak, um, well, obviously, in receipt of that knowledge that that meeting was taking place, uh, will not allow the situation to run for a long time, and that the pride of the owner, 
Sheikh Mansour and, of course, um, Abu Dhabi uh, being the state owner of Manchester City um, will not allow speculation to continue over Arteta's future and they themselves will ask Arteta to make a decision sooner rather than later rather than uh, let this drag on and potentially um, have a negative effect on their season. So, Duncan, you've got some interesting transfer news about uh, a player moving to the Etihad in January. Yes, this is a deal that is already um, 100% agreed by the club and the player. It's um, left back from Barcelona, uh, Juan Larios. Uh, He's just 15 years of age at the moment. He turns 16 in January, but he is regarded as a top talent, um, similar in type to Jordi Alba, um, is already playing two years ahead of his age range at Barcelona. And City are taking advantage, as they have done on numerous occasions before, of the ability to sign 16-year-olds from other European countries, top talent from other um, top academies um, on big money, um, for that age range and bringing them into their uh, academy, which is full of other um, similarly well-regarded talents and uh, and set them up to feed into the, the Manchester City team down the line. Um, Larius was, had a lot of options. Uh, obviously, he could have chosen to stay with Barcelona, but Manchester City's financial offer was way ahead of, of the, uh, his host clubs. Um, Chelsea, I'm told, liked the player but decided against making an offer because they have a a very good left-back in their academy at present and didn't want to block his route to the first team. Manchester United did make a financial offer for Larius um, but were nowhere near the money Manchester City were prepared to offer. Um, And from the player's perspective, uh, I'm told it was always City were always the more attractive option, not simply because of the financial terms, but because it, the feeling was it would be the easiest shift to English football in that you're working in an environment with a lot of Spanish um, coaches, a style of play that is not dissimilar to that he'd been working with at Barcelona and, um, and therefore a, a good opportunity to progress and adapt in those early years. Interestingly, I'm told that although Liverpool um, would have been interested in the player, there were no uh, concrete discussions with Liverpool because um, there was a feeling that Liverpool had not handled uh, a similar young Iberian talent that they had in their academy with a proper degree of respect. And um, the representatives of Larius did not want to place uh, another talented young player in that academy working with um, the director structure and the coaching structure they have there in, in case they face the same problems they had with the, with the player they have at Liverpool at the moment. Um, I think there's another interesting side to this in that it's, it's quite likely that Premier League clubs won't be able to make these acquisitions anymore. Um, Duncan, are you going to mention the B word? Because you know how we don't like to swear on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I am indeed going to mention the B word. um, And that word, of course, is Brexit. Um, So in principle, once Brexit happens, that will be the end of the dispensation that Premier League clubs have um, to take players from other European Union 
countries at the age of 16. They'll then have to wait until these, these kids are 18 years of age uh, to adhere to FIFA rules on the, the transfer of minors. That will, um, it, it, the Premier League have been told, will come into force um, not uh, as uh, the withdrawal bill from the EU has been voted through by uh, Boris Johnson's new government, and there's another B word for you. Um, so they will have this January to do the deal, to do such deals. They also expect to have next summer to do such deals because um, the guidance from FIFA is that the Premier League will be allowed to carry on taking players from Europe until the transition period following the withdrawal bill has been completed. Now, that's due to end in December 2020. So I would expect from that to see even more activity from Premier League clubs to take kids from top sides like Barcelona in this January window and this summer window than we've seen before. Remember, the Premier League has a real history of picking up top talents this way. You've got Cesc Fabregas, famously taken from Barcelona as a 16-year-old. Hector Bellerin, who, um, although his career has, has gone backwards a bit because of a, a serious knee injury, was at one stage um, regarded as a, a likely um, very high transfer purchase back to Spanish football um, and was targeted by Barcelona to take back at left back at one stage. Paul Pogba, another player taken at the age of 16 from, in this case, from France. You got Manchester City with Brahim Diaz, who they then sold back to Real Madrid last January for um, a very substantial transfer fee. And then uh, even further back, you've got Manchester United and Gerard Piquet. This will be a big blow, Duncan, there's no doubt about it, with regards to um, the way that things clubs have signed uh, players under the age of 18 over the last... 10, 15 years, the clubs themselves have spent hundreds of thousands of pounds, if not millions of pounds in scouting, um, as well as investment in players. Generally speaking, the practicalities and logistics of these things mean that they have to um, set up the said player and his family with a house, uh, within a very small um, radius of the training ground. Uh, they have to build proper support system as well which is usually familial, um, and obviously the payments uh, would be illegal unless they were paid to the parents as well. So the, the kid themselves signs on for um, for no money, but the parents themselves are then paid quite a handsome salary, and we've seen that in many cases uh, in relation to players that have signed for both Manchester City and Chelsea in the past. Chelsea in particular, if you think about you know the average of 30-plus players that they send out on loan every season, and most of them have come through their academy, and I think around 50 to 60% um, are not uh, homegrown, uh, but they are then sent out on loan mostly to uh, feeder clubs in Holland. And then, of course, the vast majority are sold on for a, a profit for Chelsea, meaning that their net transfer spend in the last 10 years um, has gone down significantly compared to uh, to previous seasons under Roman Abramovich. So this is one of the things I think that we didn't believe uh, or didn't really see coming in terms of Brexit. But, um, of course, both Manchester City and Chelsea were recently punished by FIFA for exactly the same 
uh, offences with regards to players registered from players outside of the European Union. So I don't think this particular trend is going to end simply because of the withdrawal agreement for the UK and Northern Ireland uh, in Brexit. One player who will not have any uh, problems in transferring, and indeed we did tell you on the podcast last Friday, um, because yeah, as you know, we pride ourselves on bringing the news before it becomes news, is that of um, Erlen Haaland, who we did say uh, would meet with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and seek assurances about game time, uh, his position in the team, should he join Manchester United. Um, and it has since been confirmed that Solskjaer did meet Haaland uh, last Friday, um, as we said on Friday's podcast. Uh, the discussion went well. Solskjaer believes the player is certainly coming to Manchester United, but there is a caveat, and that is that um, Haaland and his dad, Alf, uh, would prefer for the player to spend the remainder of the season um, at RB Salzburg uh, and continue to score goals there. Salzburg, of course, would prefer that to be the case. Then you have the involvement of Mina Raiola, not Manchester United's favourite agent, it has to be said, but someone they're going to be forced to have to deal with in this particular transfer, who is looking for a very handsome commission indeed, around 10 to 15 million euros on what could be a transfer which reaches up to 90 million euros, uh, depending on add-ons and step-ups, should Haaland uh, reach certain targets, Manchester uh, Manchester United reach certain targets regarding Champions League qualification, titles, etc., etc. Duncan, everyone I've spoken to um, who I trust in the transfer market, whether it be agents, chief executives, scouts, have said to me almost in unison, that's an awful lot of money for a 19-year-old who's yet to prove himself in the top league. Would that be your opinion as well? It would be my opinion, but more importantly, it's the opinion of people who are paid to make these decisions and are very good at making these decisions when it comes to that age category of players. Um, It fits with what Manchester United have done um, since Solskjaer has become manager. Uh, The only difference being that they're finally signing a player from outside the UK, having taken um, Daniel James, Harry Maguire and Aaron Wan-Bissaka in the last transfer window. He's young. um, He has a lot of development potential. Um, You can say that it it very much is sensible in that he can offer tactical options to Manchester United that Solskjaer and Ed Woodward took away in the summer window in that they will give them a striker who is um, physically powerful, very good in the air, comfortable with playing with his back to goal and, and allow them to play different ways in matches as the circumstances uh, require it. If you look at those three signings, two of them in particular, they paid significantly over the odds um, for the players involved. Aaron Wan-Bissaka was the highest fee for a specialist uh, fullback at the time the deal was done, £55 million uh, pounds for him. Um, Wan-Bissaka is a very good one-on-one defender. We've seen that throughout his time at Manchester United. We saw it at Crystal Palace. We're seeing it again at Manchester United. We saw it against Everton at the weekend, um, winning, I think, every tackle he went into, repeatedly stopping Richarlison when Richarlison thought he was getting past Wan-Bissaka by by putting a leg in and and making an intervention. Um, He is 
a great one-on-one defender. I think there's some questions still about his positional sense. If you go back to the um, Manchester City match last week, um, I think you'll see that Wan-Bissaka plays Gabriel Jesus on um, by not coming out in the defensive line, uh, which Jesus missed a header, I think, from six, seven yards, which would have brought City back into the game in the first half. So that there are elements where he has to develop, but uh, you know, a good signing, a good addition to their defence. Maguire, they horrendously overpaid for. Um, I don't think, and I've said this many times in the podcast, I don't think it was a clever signing. I think his limitations are obvious and they're ones you can't change, primarily being a lack of pace. But what you see from both of those deals was United making a decision on a player, relatively young player, and put it, being prepared to put down very big fees to get hold of them because their scouting department had gone with it and their manager had gone with it. And I think that's what you're seeing with Haaland. Um, they're, you know, they've made a decision that he is a, an intelligent addition to the squad and they're prepared to use their financial resource to get him. Even, I mean, Daniel James, they, they've been proved absolutely correct and the fee seemed high when they bought him from Swansea. Um, but James has, has added something different to their attack and that they already had a quick attack, but they now have a, a player who is, I think, faster than every opponent he's played so far this season and, and gives them a weapon because they can play the ball long ahead of James and uh, expect him to get first onto the ball. So that one, you would say, absolutely has been a success for Manchester United and should turn into more of a success because there are lots of elements of James's game that um, can be coached and improved um, and the speed should be retained um, unless he's unfortunate and has a very bad um, physical injury. But, you know, th- this pattern of chasing younger players, putting a lot of money down um, to beat rivals for them is one we've seen from Solskjaer and Woodward and, and therefore not a, a great surprise that they're prepared to do with Haaland. Interestingly, Duncan, um, Haaland was born in Leeds which, of course, is where his father played, um, apart from moving to Manchester City as well. But he spent his childhood playing in English football on those dreadful muddy pitches that we often discuss in cliché on a Tuesday, wet Tuesday night in Yorkshire. Um, and then before going to join the academy of the club Brian FK, where his father uh, also joined, and that was, the, that was until 2015. So he was 15 years old. At the time, um, he went to play in the academy at Bryna. So what you're saying, Ian, is he still qualifies to be a member of Brexit FC? I think he does, yeah. <laughs> You'd like to think so. I'm my, my sort of most curious question on this uh, transfer, and it has been going on for quite a long time, uh, as we know and as we've reported, is um, do you think that Bang was a centre-half? He is six foot four and very good in the air, and that's something that Manchester United kind of lack at this moment in time. <laughs> I, I doubt that Bang was a centre-half, but I would be, wouldn't be surprised if part of the consideration is they're adding someone who can improve uh, their defending at set pieces, um, which, of course, is what cost them um, two points again against the team that they'd be expected to beat. Everton at the weekend, a team who um, are fighting against relegation at present um, and uh, allowed that game to become difficult for themselves by some absolutely amateur 
marking assignments um, and Everton corner. So you, you have uh, Manchester United set up to mark zonally. Um, there are two centre-backs covering one side of the, the right-hand side of the, the six-yard box. Um, you have Michael Keane, Yerry Mina and Dominic Calvert-Lewin, all three very um, substantial and dangerous forces at set pieces covered by Luke Shaw, Fred and Aaron Wambasaka. Um, Wambasaka was the only one of those three who managed to stick with a player um, as the ball came into the box. Shaw and Fred were just dispensed with allowing Calvert-Lewin and Mina to go directly in on, on the goalkeeper, David De Gea. Um, Maguire, meanwhile, got held uh, up with uh, Mason Holgate, who stood in front of him and held his ground and prevented Maguire from attacking the ball. So Maguire was taken out of play. Lindelof was marking no one. There's clearly an argument that De Gea was fouled um, by Calvert-Lewin, by an Everton player, um, when the ball came in. And I think many referees in the Premier League would have given a foul for his um, for that challenge and you do have to say that he was weak going for the ball which isn't unusual because that is not one of his strengths as a goalkeeper is going for aerial balls but you know probably seven times out of ten a Premier League referee would have given a foul there Did you go to VAR you know, though Duncan and VAR, so you had two decisions both Yeah that, that, that means nothing because we know that VAR has been has been told by the Premier League only to overrule or clear and obvious decisions. So essentially they go with the referee's decision on the field. I think I think it's fair to say seven times out of ten in the Premier League that would be given as a foul. However, the problem comes from the marking. Manchester United had ten players in their box when the ball is kicked at the corner. There are five Everton players in the box. Manchester United's 11th player, Daniel James, was two yards away from the box. And they go from having a 10v5 advantage to having two of Everton's biggest players absolutely free inside the six-yard box against David De Gea, which isn't a good situation, even if um, Calvert-Lewin doesn't pressure De Gea in the way he does. And the... This isn't unusual. Manchester United have been weak for set-piece defending through this season. And, um, you know, they've spent a huge amount of money to add physicality to their defence. Wan-Bissaka and Maguire in particular are, are very physical defenders. Maguire, his greatest strength is his aerial ability. Yet they are um, struggling to defend set-pieces against... Um, these kind of teams, also against Manchester City, who's a team not renowned for their um, their set piece uh, strength. So the the goal Manchester City got back in the derby was a similar kind of situation with Otamendi scoring from relatively close range at uh, a set piece. That comes down to the coaching. That is uh, once again evidence that Billy Gunnar Solskjaer is handicapping his team by not setting them up properly to combat opposition and and there should be an improvement in Manchester United set piece defending when you add two physical defenders as they have done um, in the summer and one who is a is a, a specialist in the air but we haven't seen that yet well on the subject of Manchester United and uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know we hate blowing smoke in Duncan's direction 
Oh, who am I kidding? I can't even make that one fly. Of course we love blowing smoke. He predicted that the Everton game could see Ole Gunnar Solskjaer end up with a worse record in his first 17 games as Manchester United manager than Jose Mourinho had last season, after which he was summarily dismissed. And of course, Duncan, your prediction has come true. Yeah, last season, um, after the Liverpool game uh, away, when Mourinho was dismissed, um, Manchester United had 26 points from their 17 games. They were in sixth place. Um, this season, after Solskjaer has that freedom in the transfer market to buy the players he had asked for and uh, the freedom to get rid of, importantly, the players he didn't want to, at the club anymore, to change the style of play, uh, to change the training regime, which he told us would make a huge difference to their effectiveness on the field and make his players more robust and remove the, the fitness issues that they had uh, during his temporary period in charge. They're in sixth place um, on goal difference with 25 points, so a point less. Um, Solskjaer's win record uh, since being appointed permanent manager last March in the Premier League is now 32%. So less than one win in every three Premier League games he has managed as the permanent manager. Um, and it's it's not great, is it? It's really to, to see that kind of performance from a manager of a club of Manchester United resources um, is, I think, pretty much unprecedented um, to get get to that, that, have that win rate as a permanent manager of a club of this level and still to have very vocal public support from the club and not only public support that he should continue, the idea being promulgated that he needs at least um, a couple more seasons of transfer windows to uh, complete what they call the cultural reboot of the club and to get them back to a position where they can credibly challenge for the Premier League title and credibly challenge in the Champions League. Well, Duncan, after 17 games, we're, we're too short of the uh, dreaded half-term report uh, for every Premier League club. And the bigger picture for at Solskjaer at this moment in time is that while his team is capable of competing and indeed defeating um, teams which you would argue have better squads, better 1-11s to than Manchester United, i.e. Manchester City, perhaps Tottenham Hotspur, Liverpool, Chelsea, etc., etc., he's consistently failing to beat teams who they should really be beating, uh, teams in the bottom half, teams that are newly promoted. And that's something which, uh, in the era of Ferguson, which, of course, every Manchester United manager in the next 20 years is going to be judged by that comparison, Ferguson's uh, relentless approach to winning was that you treat every game the same. You don't just get up for the big games against the big clubs. Now, Solskjaer's win rate, his uh, record and the points uh, so far tell us that he is either incapable or his players are incapable of lifting themselves and focusing the same way against lesser teams that they are against bigger teams. And that's something which eventually you know, will come home to roost and will get you the sack. Although, of course... As you've always said, he is the precious one. Uh, he's a point behind Jose Mourinho. When he got sacked last season, 
uh, at this point. So clearly, if uh, Solskjaer is given even more time, more resources in the January window, then there must be something about him which we're not seeing, which Ed Woodward and the Glazers are. I don't think it's an issue here with Solskjaer in terms of focus on games and not wanting to win games. I think he absolutely has that Ferguson-like quality to him that um, he expects his team to perform in, in every game and he expects to to get a result from every game. He has used more defensive tactics than than Ferguson has in particularly in domestic games. We've seen him set up at Old Trafford with, with a back five in certain matches, which is something I don't think Ferguson ever did, um, starting with a back five in, a, in an English uh, Premier League or, or uh, Cup match. Um, so he's prepared to use different tactics, but I don't think it's, it, it's a lack of focus from him. We have seen him comment, particularly on the squad he had last season, that uh, mentally there was an issue with them. And that tallies with what previous coaches have said about Manchester United after coming into the club, that the the players had got used to um, not winning all the time and not being expected to win all the time and thinking that a, a draw was an acceptable result against opposition that that they would be expected to win against in the past. So there, there, there is an issue there or has been an issue there with the mentality of the players, and you know, many of those players are are still with him, albeit majority of the ones that are still with him are the ones he's chosen to retain. And when he talks about the players uh, at present, he says there's a big difference, and that they um, they do um, they act and behave and focus in a different way um, from the the problems he had last season. I think the the, the key issue here is that he he set up the team. Um, with only really one tactical approach. Um, and he structured a squad in which he, he doesn't have many options to change things in matches. They play predictably. That way they play works well against teams that are expected to to come and attack against them. Therefore, you get good results in those top six matches coupled with the focus that he has managed to instill in the players. So it's, it's it's not just a way of playing. He's obviously able to get the players um, in a mental state where they can perform in those uh, matches against top six sides. You question, I think people at the club have who are working with them, is even if he's allowed to broaden out the squad and, and you, and I'm sure he will be allowed to broaden out the squad by Woodward and he gets to sign different types of players to give him tactical options like Haaland, um, different players in midfield. Does he have the coaching ability to get the most out of those players? Um, the training regime, the soft muscle injuries that they've suffered since he's, he's come in suggest he's got that wrong. You talk to players who've worked with him, they don't see a sophisticated coach. They don't see... Some of them don't see a man who is at the top level as a manager, doesn't provide them with the tactical options, doesn't read games as well as other managers they've worked with, um, isn't able to change games uh, as they are uh, going on. We see the issues that they have with set-piece defending, which should um, not be there. That's, that's something that should be resolvable on the training ground without changes or further changes in personnel. So... Yes, if they spend more money 
which has been the Manchester United way, and they bring better players in, that you would expect the results to improve. Will they improve to the level that um, Ed Woodward is saying that the club's plan is to improve them too, which is to be challenging for the Premier League, to be challenging for the Champions League with Solskjaer in charge? I think there's serious, serious doubts about that. When you struggle to um, compete against opponents who are obdurate, stubborn, etc., like Everton have been, like Sheffield United have been, etc., Duncan, um, a lot of managers, and I think it, you know, has been proven to be the right thing to do, is that you employ a player known widely as the game breaker, the the unpredictable nature of one particular talent who can turn a game on the a twist or indeed uh, a little bit of skill. And I think Nico Gaetan is the man for that job at Manchester United, and I think we should be promoting Nico Gaetan in the January window. <laughs> the Gaetan ruse. Or, or, at least the, Gaetan or, or at least the ruse. At least we'll get him a contract somewhere else. We should keep it going, that's for sure. Uh, all our friends in Portugal will be very um, su- supportive of us. Uh, speaking of um, inconsistency in results, Duncan... Um, Chelsea slumped to their fourth defeat in five games, losing, uh, I think, in particular to Bournemouth, West Ham. Um, Frank Lampard says he doesn't really count Manchester City, so, okay, we'll give him that one. Um, But also, he was very, very honest in his post-match analysis uh, after the defeat to Bournemouth uh, last weekend. He said that the players need to show more courage, they were slow in starting. They were not good enough uh, for m- much and indeed most of that game. Um, they're now just three points ahead of Jose Mourinho's Tottenham, who are in fifth place. So they've been losing ground week on uh, week with regards to uh, making Champions League football. Um, have you seen a decline? Or, or, or is there anything in particular you can put your finger on with regards to why it's not been firing at Chelsea for the last month? Well, there's another 17-game comparison, which um, doesn't look good for Frank Lampard, which is 17 games of Maurizio Sarri as as Chelsea's Premier League manager and 17 games for Frank Lampard as Premier League manager. And uh, Sarri last season had 37 points. Lampard has 29 points. Um, So there's obviously been a decline in results uh, from one period to another. But I think you have to remember that that initial period of, of Sari was one in which Premier League clubs were still working out how we played. Um, and uh, remember, it was a very predictable fashion in which he played. It was a different style that hadn't been used in the Premier League before, but it was predictable. And when clubs made that calculation and found a way to play against it, those results went into decline under Sarri. He also got a lot of breaks early on in the season. If you go back through those early matches, there were several of them which could the result could have gone against Chelsea, but um, some good fortune allowed the that, that picture of 37 points from um, 17 matches to be a lot rosier than it should have been. Um, then you have to say Lampard comes into a context, obviously, where he didn't have the ability to sign players in the transfer market, where he'd lost the club's best player, Eden Hazard, to Real Madrid, um, and where he 
and it, this is his own choice, but also one that the club was very much on board with, um, has been promoting youth players from the academy um, with the the medium to long-term future of the club in mind and something the club has been ext- extremely happy with the outcome. Um, I don't think you'll find many Chelsea supporters complaining that they're in the top four at this stage of the season um, with still a, a reasonable cushion over Tottenham in fifth place. And certainly they won't be complaining that so many youth players have come into the side. But I think you also have to calculate that this is the point of time in which it will become difficult to have that many inexperienced players in a, a side with Chelsea's media profile. Um, you know, it, it, in your first full season, which is what a lot of these players are facing in a Premier League and in a major Premier League club, um, fatigue will get to you earlier than it will as an experienced player. They also have, um, a lot of them have been promoted to the England international team. So they're suddenly facing uh, playing international football and that level of expectation and um, uh, surveillance, I suppose you could say, of their performances. Um, And that added emotional demands of not only having to play for a top Premier League club every week, but also coming into your, your country's national side and being expected to perform for a different manager and a different set of coaches. Although Steve Holland is one that most of them are familiar with from their time at Chelsea. So I think a lot of this is to be expected and to do a direct comparison with Sari um, and say, well, Lampard has eight less points than Sari did at this time. Therefore, he's not as good uh, a manager uh, as Maurizio Sarri, I think would be it's, it's quite a naive analysis to make. I think from speaking to people close to the Chelsea dressing room, Duncan, I've been told that one of the problems that um, Lampard has found compared to his time with Derby County in his first season as a head coach is that um, while the physical demands of the championship and of course he had Mason Mount, Tammy Abraham uh, uh, as well as uh, Tomori at at Derby County there was less pressure psychologically on those players because they were playing one league below, they were playing a club where expectations were limited to the playoffs and potentially getting promotion I think they certainly exceeded expectations in that one season that Lampard was in charge. And this season has been different for them. And there's almost like a kind of uh, psychological wall that some of the players have hit. And that's contributed to a downturn in performances at the likes of which I think uh, everyone could see against Bournemouth last weekend, where Mason Mount was almost anonymous for much of the game. Lampard said himself that the team barely played well in the first half and that that Bournemouth wanted it more. And Bournemouth are a team who have seven major injuries who would potentially be starting line-up as well as on a very bad run of form themselves. And so uh, yet another home defeat, I think that's three and seven so far uh, for Lampard's Chelsea uh, which is not a good return Chelsea are traditionally very very strong 
at Stamford Bridge. Uh, they have played certainly better and, and definitely achieved better results away from home uh, this particular season. And I think what's needed is that um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bit of a kind of, you know, rock in a hard place for, for Frank Lampard right now. Um, he's got young players and as a young player himself, he wanted to play every game. Uh, he sees that enthusiasm and that drive in his players. But he's also got to balance that out with the demands of playing in the Premier League week in, week out, as well as European football. And uh, he finds it difficult to drop them because he doesn't want to dent their confidence. But at the same time, sees them tiring mentally, physically, in different degrees, and thinks, I, I really should give them a rest, but doesn't want to as I said, dent their confidence or deflate them uh, as players uh, and therefore potentially do more damage than good by giving them a rest. So I think this has been a big, steep learning curve. He said that himself. Uh, and he, as I said, he was very honest in his appraisal of his players' performance after the game against Bournemouth. Um, I suspect we'll see um, some rotation over the next two to three games. I think he realises that that is necessary now. But of course, the other challenge he has, Duncan, is, is the transfer window. He's already said he doesn't want to bring in players who are going to affect his team selection of the guys he's put his faith in, uh, most of the younger players who are academy graduates at Chelsea, um, as well as uh, players like Christian Pulisic, who have come in and done extremely well. But at the same time, he's under pressure to spend because the club have money to spend they have gone through a whole transfer window having sold their best players you pointed out Aiden Hazard for a massive profit um, his budget is not a problem with regards to recruiting but at the same time his, his probably his biggest difficulty is to um, identify and bring in players who will complement the young squad that he has the philosophy that he has of um playing younger players who all relate to each other, identify with each other, et cetera, et cetera, without upsetting the equilibrium of that dressing room. Um, because the dressing room itself is something which every coach knows. You know, that attitude, that environment is absolutely uh, central to the results that you're going to get. So he has this, um, I guess, this choice in front of him He's got 30 odd days of a transfer window to bring in new and, uh, I guess, invigorating players to complement what's already a very good squad. But at the same time, he doesn't want to uh, his for his players who have done so well from so far to look around that dress and say, "Oh, I'm in I'm in trouble now. I'm in danger. My place is not going to be assured, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Now. He's a nice guy, Frank Lampard. I think everyone in the game agrees that is the case. And uh, he needs maybe to be not such a nice guy when it comes to making decisions which benefit his football club and, of course, benefit him as a head coach. So I think there's an interesting, you know, six weeks ahead for Lampard and Chelsea with regards to his team selection and, just as importantly, who he might recruit in the transfer window. Well, it's a new challenge for Lampard to have uh, that kind of resource in the transfer market and he's, his first access to it 
is during the January window, which we know is the, the hard one to recruit in. It's the one that most clubs avoid, although Chelsea, interestingly, have a history of spending a lot of money in the January market and have, I think, outspent every other. <laughs> well, and, and, and many other players. I think if you look at the numbers, they've, they've spent more in the January window than pretty much every club in Europe over the last what does that um, say, Duncan? 10 years. What does that say about Chelsea? Do they panic easily? I think there's an element of panic in it. There's an element of, of making these deals when they're available to them, with Fernando Torres being an example, Liverpool being prepared to sell, the player wanting to go, and then Roman Pravic saying, do that deal. Uh, spend that money, make him the most expensive forward of all time, as he did. Um, so they paid I £50 million for the player and £90 million in medical fees for his knee, yeah? <laughs> not not quite that much, but um, they would have been well advised to spend on a proper medical before signing him, as we've talked about in the, in the podcast before. I think it also is a, a, an element of Chelsea having this system that we've, we've talked about and that they sign players um, at, in order to make money. Um, and they've, they've, they've bought players from overseas to put them in their squad and then loan them out elsewhere, put their value up and sell them later on. So they're looking at the transfer market in a different way from other clubs, where other clubs would be focused primarily on strengthening the first team. Part of it for Chelsea has been a, a market trading deal. I, th- I think also Lampard now faces that eternal challenge at Chelsea, which is to what extent he can leverage control over that spend. When the club decides to spend in the window, do they decide to buy a player that he wouldn't want and cause him a problem in terms of uh, handling the squad and integrating him with the squad? Or do they present players to him and allow him the final say? And, uh, and if Lampard says, no, I don't want that one, Chelsea shy away from making the deal. Because through the course of Abramovich's reign, through the course of Marino Granovskaya's reign as, as chief executive and a very involved chief executive in the transfer market, the tendency has been for the club to trust their own judgment over that of the manager. They made some very good decisions in transfers and they've made some very bad decisions that have, have caused coaches huge problems. Uh, Fernando Torres being the prime example. And for that Fernando Torres buy, you could argue, was resulted in Carlo Ancelotti losing his job um, a few months later because uh, he was forced to play a player who was incapable of, of fitting into the Chelsea system and was in a, a medical state where... Um, where he actually was a detriment to the team. And the man who bore responsibility for it was the, the manager, not not the individuals who had uh, who had brought him to the club. And I think Frank will know that better than anyone since he was a player when a lot of these things were happening and there for many years. And um, and it's going to be interesting to see how he handles that dynamic now he's the, the manager of the club. Well, this is and has been Monday's Transfer Window podcast. As ever, we will end with the hero and villain section. I'm going to invite Duncan to uh, give us the villain of the last few days before I will nominate my hero. I I think it's a very clear villain of the last few days and and a very um, concerning one for Premier League football, and that is 
the Chinese state and their response to a Twitter um, post from Meza Ozil in which he um, he criticised both China and uh, and the silence of Muslims uh, about the the treatment of uh, Uyghur Muslims in China and um, the persecution of those individuals in the in the Chinese state. Um, China's response was aggressive, um, both in state media, but also in that they took Arsenal's, um, the biggest game of, of Sunday, Premier League game of Sunday, Arsenal's game about Manchester City off Chinese television and instead showed a replay of the earlier match um, between Wolves and Tottenham Hotspur, um, made it quite clear that uh, that they were unhappy with Wizzles intervention and, and I think there's a sort of secondary villain because Arsenal put out um, a, a post on their Chinese um, based uh, Weibo uh, social media account distancing themselves from what Ozil had said and saying the content he expressed is entirely Ozil's personal opinion as a football club Arsenal always adheres to the principle of not being involved in politics and that that was interesting in that there was a very um, clear-cut example of another Arsenal player involving himself in politics last week um, when Hector Bellerin made a, um, a much retweeted statement about uh, the British elections um, and urging young people across the world have a chance to change what the future can be. Today's the chance for all the British people to influence what your future and those living here holds. Um, and then uh, making a very uh, clear statement about what he thought of, of Boris Johnson. Um, Arsenal did not make a statement about that and asked about it off record. I'm told they said the reason they didn't make a statement about that was that um, Bellerin's statement did not have the same um, reach on social media as uh, Uzzles. Now, Bellerin's statement was uh, very broadly retweeted and, uh, and liked. Um, it certainly had a significant reach. Um, Uzzles was greater, but uh, I think the fact that Arsenal responded when China intervened tells you a lot about club's attitude to this and the, the value China has to them commercially. Arsenal have um, secondary sponsors from China. Um, their commercial deals are very important to the club. If they got into a situation where Chinese TV stopped showing their games on a regular basis, that would have clear commercial detriments for the club in that even their title sponsors, regardless of whether they're based in China or not, would obviously not be happy that they weren't getting TV exposure in China. And... Um, the, the degree of Chinese influence on English football is substantial. They own clubs here. The television broadcasting rights for the Premier League, the 2019-22 rights, are worth $700 million to the Premier League across that period. So it's a substantial sum of money and substantial influence. And, um, and I think it's a big problem for the game. Yeah, I reckon there's a few phone calls being... Uh fielded at Arsenal HQ this morning from other Premier League chief executives asking the pertinent question, WTF. Um, my hero, Duncan, is your namesake, although, of course, you're small dunk and he is big dunk. He is substantially taller than you. Uh, <laughs> six foot four, 
Duncan Cowan Ferguson, he born of Stirling, a man who, of course, when you spent time in the Barrel, and those of you who don't know what that is, that's Berlini High Security Prison in Glasgow, uh, doesn't need to have a jacket that's soaked with rain because during yesterday's match with Manchester United, he took said jacket off and when everyone was expecting him to put on a club-branded raincoat instead, he went out in his shirt and tie and conducted all of his managerial duties from then on in the pouring rain in his shirt. He explained latterly that he doesn't feel the cold, which of course any from, anyone from Scotland would feel the same. I said I don't feel the cold. I go out in my T-shirt in December, so I know what Big Dunk uh, feels about that. And uh, the man is an inspiration to us all. He should be complimented, he should be heralded, and he should indeed be considered for the Everton job just for the fact that he goes out and then does his press conference in said wet shirt afterwards. We'll not say anything about the uh, substitution of Moise Keane, Duncan, because I know that you were a bit kind of uh, concerned by uh, his judgment process and that, but uh, he kind of joked that he did it to waste time and then laterally said in the press conference that it was because he was missing the pace of the game. That's a subject to be discussed, I guess, with Moise Keane, uh, uh, his future performances for Everton Football Club, I guess. Um, I would say that in my experience of Duncan Ferguson and from what I've heard about Moise Keane, they are very different characters uh, with regards to what they think are priorities in their playing careers. So um, Hero of the Week, Big Dunk, Villain of the Week, China stroke Arsenal Football Club. Duncan Disorderly, I should say, has long Duncan been a hero. <laughs> long been a hero of mine. He's a Dundee Obviously. United man, that's why. Exactly. The best part of his career was at Dundee United. Um, and uh, I know Everton fans will not appreciate me saying that, but it should be remembered that he was sold by Dundee United to Rangers for £4 million, which was a record transfer fee for a player from uh, the United Kingdom. <laughs> In the United Kingdom at that stage, which is remarkable if you think uh, where Scottish Premier League clubs are now and uh, how far off the transfer fees they can achieve in the market are to to those that are being paid um, by English Premier League clubs. Um, and, and he was an outstanding uh, player as a teenager. Um, and I think the, the Moise Keane, it was, uh, it was strong management, uh, strong, good game management in that he, he improved his team defensively by changing Moise Keane but you'd, you'd want to question whether he might have said and something to Keane as he came off the pitch and embraced him and explained why he brought him off um, because he, he's a valuable asset to Everton and, uh, and that's going to be a difficult personal relationship for him to diffuse if he does carry on as manager there which you'd have to say there is a possibility of that now well, both dunks, we salute you. Um, we obviously, as you know, um, love to continue the debate after the podcast and between podcasts and all the time. Um, we've had some great responses uh, over the last few days, um, both good and bad, and we welcome both. That's fine by us because the debate is exactly what it says. It's a conversation between people who love football. So that's fine. Um, please, if you want to continue that, then get us on at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, same handle on Instagram and Facebook. 
individually Duncan's at Duncan Castles I'm at Garbo West J please get in touch engage us and of course we will respond because we love to chat to the people who are listening to the podcast quick reminder that Wednesday of course as always is your questions answered get those questions in for us please we're recording today ahead of the European draws so obviously any questions that you have with regards to how those draws have turned out will be um, answered and welcomed as well as anything you've heard on today's podcast and of course whatever's on your mind please just get in touch we'll be very happy to answer um as for now uh we will see you through the transfer window on wednesday all that's left to say is thanks for listening 